Hey everyone, welcome to The Catholic Reason, a radio show produced by St. Michael Catholic Radio, where we explain the whys behind Catholic beliefs concerning issues of faith, morality, and culture. My name is Carlo Brusard, and I'm a staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers, and a member of the Chancery Evangelization team at the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma. Every week on Thursday at 4 p.m., I'll be hanging out with you, thinking through various claims made by the Catholic Church and providing the reasons behind those claims, hence the title of the show, The Catholic Reason. The topics that we'll cover will be wide and vast. Some will deal with issues that come up when Catholics get into conversations with Protestants. Some will deal with issues that pertain to Christian belief in general, and dialoguing with skeptics to Christianity. And still others uh, will deal with philosophical and ethical matters, from God's existence and the problem of evil, to homosexual lifestyle choices and contemporary gender ideology and a host of other ethical issues. Now, eventually, in the show, we'll devote a segment or two uh, to answering emails submitted by you, the listener. But stay tuned for details on that. I'll give you instructions on how to do that as we move forward in future shows. Also, keep in mind that the show will be podcasted, so you can download and listen to the show anytime you want, and you can get the podcast version of the show by searching The Catholic Reason in any podcast search engine and using any podcast app that you use. Now, for this particular episode, our first episode of The Catholic Reason, we're going to talk about three things, first of which is the nature and division of apologetics. This is basically going to be an int- a show on the or an introduction to apologetics, right? So we want to talk about what apologetics is and the various divisions of apologetics or branches of apologetics, because the content of the apologetical discussion will depend on the person or the audience with whom you're discussing. Secondly, we want to look at the purpose of apologetics. Uh, What are the reasons why we should engage in apologetics? In essence, we're going to give an apology for apologetics, that is to say, a defense. And whenever we talk about what apologetics is, that statement will make more sense. And then finally, the third thing I'd like to share with you in this first episode of The Catholic Reason is a brief history of apologetics, just to go through the six periods within history where apologetics is engaged in. And so, there you have it, an outline for this first episode of The Catholic Reason, Sit back, enjoy as we think through these issues, and hopefully you'll find it interesting. So let's go ahead and get started with the nature of apologetics. Whenever you speak of apologetics, whenever you use the term apologetics, people within our modern times are a bit confused. They're wondering, what the heck is apologetics, right? What is it? Most people will think, well, are you going around saying that you're sorry for being Catholic or you're sorry for being a Christian? And that's not entirely false. There's a little bit of truth in that understanding of the term apology, as we'll see in a moment. So, in answering the question, what is apologetics, the term apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, 
which is a compound of apo, which means from in Greek, and logia, which means a speech or a reason. And so apologetics would mean literally a speech defense or a speech reply. In other words, bottom line, an answer or a defense with regard to a position of belief. So anytime you're going to defend your position of belief and what you believe about anything, you're giving an apology, a speech defense, a speech reply. You're giving a, a reason why you believe what you believe. So think of Plato's dialogue. If you ever took a philosophy class, Plato's dialogue, the Apology, in which he describes how Socrates defends himself at his trial in Athens, hence the Apology. Now, since any viewpoint can be defended, and defending a particular viewpoint is the essence of giving an apology or apologetics, there can be many kinds of apologetics, right? Many kinds of defenses. So apologetics is present and found within other religions, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism. So you can have a Mormon apologist, a Muslim apologist, a Jewish apologist. Even among atheists and agnostics, you can have an atheist apologist, someone who's going to defend the particular worldview of atheism. Now, in this radio show, we'll be take, talking about apologetical issues that pertain to the Catholic worldview in particular. Hence, the name of the show, again, The Catholic Reason. Earlier, I emphasized the reason part of the name of the show. Here, I'm emphasizing the Catholic uh, part of that name of the show. Now, granted, in providing the Catholic reason, we'll be engaging with many different issues that arise when talking to atheists or arise when talking with skeptics or issues that arise when talking with Protestants. But those reasons for these particular beliefs in reference to these different claims coming from different audiences will always be given uh, from a Catholic perspective. Many times that will be particularly a Catholic perspective. Other times it will involve other perspectives as well, even uh, based upon the natural light of human reason, which will overlap with many different sorts of religious traditions. Now, so now that we have a grasp of what is it, we can take a step further and distinguish apologetics from other things that we do in the faith. It's, it's often helpful to gain clarification as to what something is by comparing it or contrasting it with other things. So what are some other things that we do in promoting the faith that could help clarify the nature of apologetics? So first of all, evangelization. Evangelization is the basic proclamation of the gospel. You go around proclaiming, hey, God exists and he sent his son to save the world, to save the world from sin and death. That initial charisma, that initial proclamation is what we technically refer to as evangelization, coming from the Greek word evangelion, or in Latin evangelium, which means the good news. You go around initially sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he won for us by his death on the cross and through his resurrection. 
So part of that initial proclamation of the good news is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the new life that he won for us through that resurrection. So that's evangelization in the technical sense. Now, evangelization can also be understood in a broader sense of just leading people into union with Christ initially and deepening that union as well. Now we have catechesis. What is catechesis? Well, catechesis can be part of the broader view of evangelization, and that's the basic instruction in the Christian faith as to what we believe, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, the Eucharist, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, everything that our Lord has revealed to us, proposed to us to be believed by Holy Mother Church, and even all of the teachings of Holy Mother Church that, although not a part of the deposit of faith, are somehow intrinsically related to it, and nevertheless put forward as infallible teaching. So that's catechesis. That's just basically the what. Now that's contrasted with apologetics insofar as apologetics is going to give you the reasons behind the what, the reasons for the Catholic claims. That's what we're doing in this show, apologetics, giving a defense of what we believe and what we teach in catechesis. Now, with regard to evangelization, apologetics is going to be related to evangelization because in that initial proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation, those people to whom you initially proclaim that gospel message will naturally wonder why I should believe. Why should I initially accept this good news being proclaimed to me? Reasons going to demand some sort of motive of credibility to assent to what is being initially proclaimed. And that's where apologetics comes in, establishing a reasonable foundation for the mind to rationally, reasonably, credibly assent to that which is being initially proclaimed. So that's how apologetics relates to evangelization. We've seen how apologetics relates to catechesis. And then, of course, we have theology. Theology proper is using our reason to understand more deeply God himself and what he's revealed to us. So it's taking the mind and having reason bear on what has been divinely revealed to us in order to have a more penetrating knowledge of that revelation, to deepen our understanding of what has been revealed to us, not just basic catechesis, okay, here's what we believe, Trinity, Incarnation, etc. Theology is going to dive deeper into that stuff and talk about and try to illuminate the mystery, to shed light in the darkness of that mystery so that the mind can have a greater understanding of of that mystery rather than statements of fact understanding the theology behind it. And of course, apologetics is going to be related to that because insofar as you dive deeper into the revealed truths of our faith and trying to shed light in that darkness of mystery, you're going to be giving reasons why you're making such theological claims. And so that's how apologetics is distinguished from other things that we do in promoting the faith and thus giving us an understanding of a better understanding of what apologetics is. So the first division is philosophical apologetics. This area of apologetics deals with those issues that pertain to truths that we can know through philosophical reasoning. So, for example, the objectivity of truth. 
if we're having a conversation with a relativist who denies the objectivity of truth and states that truth is merely relative to the individual's judgment or a group of people's judgment, well then, we're in the realm of philosophical apologetics and responding and trying to establish the objectivity of truth, that truth is not relative, that truth is objective, and there is such a thing as objective truth. That's engaging in philosophical reasoning. The good of the virtue of religion, and talking about religion in general and why religion matters, that's going to be involved in philosophical apologetics because that presupposes other philosophical topics, namely God's existence and his nature as the, uh, uh, God's existence and his nature as the source of our being and our ultimate end or life's goal in which we find complete, perfect, authentic human happiness. So that's going to be a topic involved in philosophical apologetics as well, God's existence, his nature, and our relation to him as our creator and end, and therein lies the virtue of religion. That's where religion comes up. Also involved in philosophical apologetics is the nature of the human being, our nature as having an immaterial and immortal soul, and the union that that immortal soul has to our body in uh, such a way that these are two principles in virtue of which we are one substance. So the nature of the human being, that's going to be a topic of concern in philosophical apologetics. And of course, that's going to relate to any sort of ethical conversations, because you cannot have any conversations about morality of good and bad human behavior unless you first have a proper understanding of the human being. Your understanding of the human being will affect your understanding of ethics and morality. And so the objectivity of morality and the nature of morality comes into play within this area or division of philosophical apologetics. So that's just a little taste of the, the variety of topics that are covered in philosophical apologetics. Now, you also have Christian apologetics, a second division of apologetics. And this area of apologetics deals with issues that pertain to the reasonableness of belief in Christ as the Son of God. And so, of course, that's going to involve establishing the historicity of the Gospels, that they are trustworthy in what they tell us about what Jesus said and did, the historicity, is, the historicity of Jesus' claims to be God, his resurrection as another topic, because his resurrection vindicates those claims to be God, gives us reason to think that Jesus is in fact who he says he is, namely divine. But of course, all of we can't discuss all of that unless we have that firm foundation of the historicity of the gospel. So you can see how all of these topics are connected. And then also the coherence of Christian truths concerning Jesus as God and man, such as the hypostatic union, how within Jesus there are two natures, divine and human, united in one single person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. These are issues that would constitute this division of apologetics called Christian apologetics. And we emphasize Christian because these are issues that all Christians who profess the name of Christ are going to be concerned about and going to want to talk about and defend, regardless of any particular boundaries of denomination. Now, with that said, we move to the third division, major division of apologetics, what we can call Catholic apologetics. And that's where we're going to get a little bit more specific 
with regard to the content of our apologetical discussions and the content that deals specifically with us as Catholic Christians. So we're going to be dealing with the identity of the Catholic Church as the original church established by Jesus and the variety of Catholic beliefs revealed to us by Jesus Christ. So, for example, the papacy, that Peter was established by Christ to be the leader of his church, the universal shepherd of Christ's flock here on earth, and that the Bishop of Rome, who's the successor to St. Peter, has that very same role to be the universal shepherd of Christ's flock on earth, and the supreme binder and looser and the keeper of the keys. Our various beliefs about Marian, so the Marian beliefs, her immaculate conception, her bodily assumption, Mary is the mother of God, and all these other beliefs about Mary, the saints, the communion of saints, their intercession for us, the goodness of our invocation of them, the goodness of our veneration or honor of them, the honor that we give them that is due to them as perfected members of Christ's mystical body, and of course topics like purgatory. Where is purgatory in the Bible? What, is the, what are the various aspects of the Catholic understanding of purgatory that are rooted in Scripture and in sacred tradition? These are topics that would make up Catholic apologetics or Catholic distinctives. A lot of these topics are uh, emphasized and dealt with in relation to conversations that we have with our Protestant brothers and sisters. So you can see how these, division of these divisions of apologetics are ordered or constituted by the audience that we would be talking to. So if we're talking to atheists, agnostics, um, and naturalists, those who would deny any form of reality beyond the material world, that would give rise to the division of ap philosophical apologetics. When you're talking to skeptics, to Christianity, who doubt the historicity of the New Testament, who doubt Jesus Christ being the Messiah and being God himself made flesh, that would give rise to Christian apologetics. And then, of course, dialoguing with our Protestant brothers and sisters who often object to a variety of Catholic beliefs, that would give rise to Catholic apologetics. So now that we have uh, the nature and division of apologetics established, let's now move to giving some reasons for why we should engage in apologetics, provide a defense of apologetics. And this is necessary uh, because we often encounter people who have a negative view of apologetics, even within the Catholic Church, unfortunately, folks who would try and negate the good, the effectiveness of using the mind with our faith, of engaging in proper argumentation motivated by charity to defend the faith. A lot of people are negative to apologetics and reject it. So I think it's necessary that we provide some reasons why we should engage in apologetics. I'm going to share with you seven reasons here. The first of which comes from the Bible. Our first pope as Catholic, St. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, any Christian, Catholic or not, must uh, accept the inspiration of the Holy Spirit given here by uh, 1 Peter 3.15, where St. Peter writes, always be prepared to make a defense the Greek word there, apologian, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is within you. So there we have St. Peter giving the instruction to Christians, we need to be ready to make some kind of defense to, or give a reason to anyone who's going to ask us to account for the hope that is within us. And what is our hope? 
our hope is ultimately in Jesus Christ. So St. Peter is saying we need to be ready to give a defense of our belief in Jesus Christ. And for us as Catholics, that would involve the church that he established and everything that is revealed to us that we believe to be subsisting within the Catholic Church. Now, here's a qualification that Peter gives at the end of verse 15. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And many people forget that. That whenever we're sharing our faith, whenever we're engaging in apologetics and defending our faith against challenges and objections and explaining our faith and giving reasons why we believe what we believe, we need to do so with gentleness and reverence. We need to do so with charity. We can give reasons for our belief all we want, but if we're a jerk about it, ain't nobody going to believe us, right? <laughs> Nobody's going to listen to us, as Pope St. Paul VI stated in 1975 in his encyclical event, his, I think it was his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Inunciandi. No, nobody will listen to us unless we're first witnesses. So we need to be witnesses of love, gentleness, and reverence. And reverencing the person that we're talking to, recognizing that that person is a human being just like me with a certain dignity and freedom of uh, pursuit of the truth that I need to respect. And not everybody's going to come to see the truth at a particular moment in their journey of knowledge, and we need to be respectful of that. And ultimately, is God's problem, right? Because he's the one who's going to give the grace to enlighten the mind. So the Bible commands apologetics. The church commands it. For us as Catholics, we need to engage in it to some degree because Holy Mother Church decrees it in its decree on the apostolate of the apostolate of the laity. And from the Second Vatican Council, section six, it states this: The Sacred Synod earnestly exhorts laymen, each according to his natural gifts and learning, to be more diligent in doing their part to explain and defend Christian principles and to apply them rightly to the problems of our era according to the mind of the church. So there you have an explicit command from Holy Mother Church herself. So the Bible commands it, the church commands it, and now a third reason why we should engage in apologetics is because it strengthens or fortifies the believer. Now, apologetics does this in five different ways that I have listed here. Uh, the first of which is that it strengthens the faith of the believer, and knowing that one's belief is credible and reasonable, and thus not a blind impulse of the mind. In this particular episode, we've been discussing the nature of apologetics, the division of apologetics, and before our last break, we started looking at reasons why we should engage in apologetics. I gave two prior to the break. The Bible commands it in 1 Peter 3.15, and for us as Catholics, the Church commands it at the Second Vatican Council in its decree on the apostolate of the laity. Now, I started talking about the third reason why we should engage in apologetics, and that is it strengthens and fortifies the believer. And it does so in five ways. First of which, it strengthens the faith of the believer in knowing that one's belief is credible and reasonable and thus not a blind impulse of the mind. The Catechism points this out in paragraph 156, that our faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. And apologetics serves this, shows this, uh, demonstrates this, right? Why? Because it's providing the believer the evidence that we all desire that what we believe is true. We want to assent to that which we think and believe or know to, uh, we wouldn't have uh, demonstrative knowledge with belief. So we want reasons to think that what we believe is true. And apologetics provides those reasons, okay? 
Secondly, it fortifies the believer because it gives confidence in dialoguing with non-believers. How many times we don't engage in conversation with someone because we're not confident in what we believe, or at least confident in how we should articulate our belief and defend that belief. So it gives us confidence. Thirdly, it forces us to think clearly about theological and philosophical issues and thereby strengthens the mind. The mind is strengthened as we study apologetics because we're training the mind to think clearly about theological and philosophical issues. And clear thinking is a good thing, right? Something we can all use a little dose of nowadays, right? Fourthly, apologetics can deepen our love for God. I mean, think about it. It would be very hard to have a maximum love of God with a minimum knowledge of God. We have to always remember that the more we come to know about God, the more reasons we have to love God. The late Frank Sheed points this out in his book, Theology and Sanity, that ignorance is not a virtue, right? It would be strange, he says, for God to be a God that could be loved more by being known less. So if man loves God knowing a little about him, well, then man should love God more knowing more about him. Simply put, why do apologetics? To love God more because it gives us more knowledge of him. Catechism states in paragraph 158, a more penetrating knowledge of God will in turn call forth greater faith, increasingly set afire by love. And finally, the fifth way that apologetics can strengthen or fortify the believer is that it deepens our love for the church. When we come to see that the Holy Mother Church is established by Jesus Christ, that creates or inspires within us a love for Holy Mother Church. Uh, Father Anthony Alexander has a great summary of this point in his book, College Apologetics, on page 12. He writes, Apologetics permits one to see the Church's immense strength and influence, the cogency of her credentials, the authority behind her commands, the prudence of her laws, the inerrancy of her teaching. Filial love and devotion to the Church begets a cheerful readiness to obey her in letter and in spirit. It's important that we obey her, for she guides us and assists us to attain our primary goal in life, namely, our eternal salvation. So, apologetics can deepen our love for the church, and that in turn fortifies or strengthens the believer. So, three reasons so far why we should do apologetics. The Bible commands it, the church commands it, and it strengthens and fortifies the believer. Now, here's the fourth reason. It helps the unbeliever come to Christ and receive salvation. That's pretty obvious. And engaging in apologetics, given reasons why we should believe in Jesus Christ, that's going to help the unbeliever come to belief and thereby be saved. And what greater gift can we give folks in loving them except for then giving them the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? Uh, a famous Christian apologist, William Lake Craig, makes this point clear in his book, Reasonable Faith. I'm not going to read the whole entire passage to you, but basically he says— that it's imperative for us as Christians to shape the intellectual climate of our nation in such a way that Christianity remains a live option for thinking men and women. We need to create and sustain a cultural milieu in which the gospel can be heard as an intellectually viable option for thinking men and women. And so by engaging in apologetics, we present Christianity, and I would say Catholicism, which is Christianity in full, as a viable option for thinking men and women who aren't, believe, who aren't believers, so that they can come to belief. Apologetics prepares a way for them to come to belief and thereby attain the gift of salvation. Uh, speaking of preparing the way, 
uh, this is a proper lens, I think, through which we can view the ministry of apologetics as pre- like sort of like the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing that way for the Lord, because apologetics removes those various obstacles that stand in the way of someone encountering our Lord, at least if uh, encountering our Lord initially or to encounter our Lord in deeper ways. Apologetics can remove those obstacles. So it provides for the individual, uh, disposes the individual to properly receive the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, whether initially or in full. Fifth reason why we should engage in apologetics, it's a way for us to love others. So what is love? Love is the will of the good of another. Well, the greatest good for someone to have is to come to know Jesus Christ and enter into a relationship with him. And inasmuch as apologetics helps someone achieve that good, well, then we ought to engage in apologetics. And so why apologetics? Because we love others. Sixth reason, it's a matter of justice. So here's a quote from Pope St. John Paul II in his encyclical Redemptoris Missio. Actually, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, this is quoted by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in its 2007 Doctrinal Note and Evangelization. It's a quote from Pope St. John Paul II, Redemptoris Missio. And here's what JP2 wrote. Every person has the right to hear the good news. Notice that, has a right to hear the good news of the God who reveals and gives himself in Christ so that each one can live out in its fullness his or her proper calling. And so he goes on to say, uh, it is a right which the Lord himself confers on every person. This right implies the corresponding duty to evangelize. And then Pope St. John Paul II quotes St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, if I preach the gospel, this is no reason for me to boast. It's a duty for me, right? Woe to me, Paul says, if I do not preach the gospel. So the right that every person has to hear the good news of God who reveals himself and gives himself in Christ so that we can live out our calling in its fullness gives rise to our duty as Christians to preach the gospel. And for us as Catholics, that would involve preaching the gospel in full, which involves everything that Holy Mother Church proposes to us uh, as uh, truth and what we must believe to be saved. Now, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in this doctrinal note concludes, to lead a person's intelligence and freedom and honesty to encounter with Christ and his gospel is not an inappropriate encroachment but rather a legitimate endeavor that comes from Section 5. So we're not limiting people's freedom, we're enhancing their freedom, allowing them to experience freedom in its fullness. So the truth of Christ is revealed in and through the Catholic Church is that which is capable of shedding light on the meaning of one's life and giving it direction. If we impede individuals from receiving this light due to our negligence, well, then we're in some way violating their right to the truth. So people have a right to this full truth revealed to revealed by our Lord, entrusted to into the care of Holy Mother Church. And given that right, it's a matter of justice that we engage in apologetics and defend that truth and share that truth. And then finally, the seventh reason why we should engage in apologetics is that it satisfies our rational nature. 
So it's going to help us be human, in other words, and make us happy. And it does so in two ways. First, it it satisfies our natural desire to know reality, to see reality as it is, which is the essence of sanity. The late Frank Sheed talks a lot about this in his book, Theology and Sanity. Theology and everything involved with it, apologetics, evangelization, catechesis, is going to help us see reality as it is. Because the mysteries of faith are not just ideas, right? They are expressions of what is real. And we want to see reality as it is, the essence of sanity. And apologetics can help achieve that purpose, helping people see reality as it is. And and secondly, apologetics satisfies our natural desire to assent to something with good reason. We all desire to have a rational basis upon which we can believe in something. We want to think and know that it's true first before that we assent to it and say, yeah, I believe it, right? The Catechism touches on this in paragraph 156, where it says how the submission of our faith might nevertheless, so that the submission of our faith might be in accordance with reason, God willed that external proofs of his revelation should be joined to the internal helps of the Holy Spirit. It lists the uh, miracles of Christ and the saints and prophecies, the church's growth and holiness or fruitfulness and stability, and how these are motives of credibility, showing that the ascent of faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. So there you have it, seven reasons why we should engage in apologetics. Now, in this last segment of our first episode here of The Catholic Reason, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of apologetics. Now, we could list this as one more reason to do apologetics. The idea here is, if our forefathers in faith engaged in apologetics, well then, we should too. So you might look at this as the last reason why we should engage in apologetics, but we're going to separate it as a specific section here. And I'd like to briefly run through and survey six periods of apologetics and the type of apologetics that we're engaged in. And I got to give props to my colleague and good friend Jimmy Aiken at Catholic Answers in his Introduction to Apologetics course for the Catholic Answers School of Apologetics. He walks through these six different periods. And so I'm just taking this from here and I'd like to, from him, and I'd like to share it with you here because I think he did a good job uh, with dividing these six periods up. The first of which is apologetics in the Old Testament. So, what was the content of the apologetics in the Old Testament? Well, first, one of them was polytheism, right? The Old Testament over and over again is emphasizing God as the only true God in contrast to the polytheistic view of the pagans. Secondly, the Old Testament combats false views of creation. The purpose of the creation story was to offer a counter to certain pagan creation story myths in order to emphasize that creation is good in contrast to other myths that said creation was evil and bad, and that the creation was created by the good God in contrast to other pagan myths that stated the creation was the product of an evil God. So the creation story itself is an apology against a defense of the true understanding of creation against false understandings of creation. The Old Testament combats with our struggles with evil. It's limited, but nevertheless, it's trying to make sense of it's trying to make sense out of some suffering. It's trying to make some sense out of suffering 
by showing that much suffering comes as punishment for our misuse of freedom. So it's trying to make sense of some suffering, not all, but some suffering comes by way of punishment and a misuse of our freedom. Now, with regard to this suffering that's not punishment, the, un, the Old Testament was unable to shed light on that. So it's very limited in its approach. But nevertheless, it's trying to make sense out of some suffering, dealing with the problem of evil, and so thereby making it an apology, a defense. And then also it adopts truths found in Greek philosophy. So Wisdom 8.7 approves of the four cardinal virtues proposed by Plato and other Greek philosophers, self-control, justice, prudence, and courage, and a host of other issues. You know, the Old Testament speaks of God doesn't change and his immutability, stuff that is able to be reasoned to uh, through philosophy. So the first period would be apologetics in the Old Testament. Second period, apologetics in the New Testament. The earliest of Christians engaged in apologetics. Christians were given reasons to believe Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. So Matthew's employing the technique of showing how Christ fulfills prophecies. Matthew 1, 22-23, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14, A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, they call him Emmanuel. John, John chapter 20, verses 30-31, through 31, John appeals to Jesus' signs or miracles as reason to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, implied in that would be his divinity, that we could believe in his name and come to have life. So the miracles of Jesus is a reason given by the early Christians to believe in Jesus, and thus an apology. And then finally, the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts 17.31, Paul appeals to the resurrection of Christ to try and convince the Athenians of Jesus' role. And then 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would give a, a discourse on the resurrection of Jesus being the very foundation of Christian faith. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then we would be left in our sins and our faith would be in vain. We would be the most pitiable of people. And so Christians were given reasons to believe Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. He was the fulfillment of prophecy, his miracles, and his resurrection, the greatest of his miracles. Secondly, within the New Testament, Christians attempt to deal with the problem of evil and are able to do so in a more enlightened way, in a broader way, than what the Old Testament was trying to do. So Luke 13, 1-5, uh, Luke records our Lord's teaching that suffering doesn't mean you're a bad person, clarifying a limited understanding, broadening an understanding of the Old Testament. In John 9, 1-3, our Lord teaches us that suffering doesn't mean you're being punished, right? And then St. Paul teaches us that all suffering will be redeemed in the end. This is Christian light being shed upon the darkness of the mystery of the problem of suffering in our lives and God's permission of it. It's ultimately ordered to a greater end and the glory of God being revealed and all suffering being redeemed. So, for example, in Romans 8, 17, Paul says, Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then in Romans 8, 28, we know that everything God works for good with those who love him. So you see there Paul dealing in a Christian way with the problem of suffering. Christians appealed to natural knowledge of God's existence. St. Paul does this in Romans 1, 19 through 20, teaching us that we can come to know the invisible nature of God through visible things, through creation, starting with creation. We're able to reason back to the existence of God and his nature, certain attributes of God. We call that natural theology. St. Paul also appeals to the natural moral law. 
So there are certain ethical principles and things that we can know, truths that we can know about human behavior, good and bad human behavior by the natural light of human reason, just simply looking at our human nature. St. Paul writes about this in Romans 2, 14 through 15, where he says, the Gentiles who have not the law, that is the revealed law, do by nature what the law requires, that is the Ten Commandments. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. So St. Paul appeals to the natural moral law, and then Christians combated contrary doctrines and refuted them. Second uh, Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If that's not apologetics, I don't know what is. So Paul is explicitly saying, hey, we destroy arguments uh, to the knowledge of God. And then we also have apologetics in the early church, the earliest apologists, where St. Justin Martyr, writing about A.D. 150, he was a Samaritan in the 2nd century, wrote several works, addressed to highly ranking non-Christian individuals within the Roman Empire, such as emperors and members of the Roman Senate. Two of his most famous works is the First Apology and the Dialogue with Trypho. St. Irenaeus of Lyons is another, writing about A.D. 180 to 189. He was a bishop here in the 2nd century, well-known for his five-volume work entitled Against Heresies. And then there's Origin of Alexandria. He was a 2nd and 3rd century theologian. He wrote many works, one of which is entitled Against Celsus. And then the type of apologetics they were engaging in, uh, they were working to convert people to the Christian faith, to persuade leaders to tolerate the Christian faith, and to refute rumors that led to misconceptions about the Christian faith. So, for example, the misconception that the early Christians were cannibals. They're trying to mis uh, clarify those misconceptions. And then also dealing with what some have termed internal apologetics, in contrast to the other kinds of content, which is external. They're working to settle debates swirling around within the Christian community concerning God's revelation given to the church through Jesus and the apostles. So the Ebionites believed that Jesus was merely a human Messiah, wasn't God. The Docetists affirmed Jesus' divinity but denied his humanity. He only seemed to be human. The Marcionites believed in two gods, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. Gnostics, they believe a lesser divinity created, a lesser de deity created the world. They had special revealed knowledge. So these earliest apologists we're dealing with these issues within the Christian community. And then you have apologetics in the Middle Ages. And this would be starting with St. Augustine in the late 4th and early 5th century, dealing with challenges that rose from the Greco-Roman paganism and dealing with many theological truths in-house. St. John Damascene in the late 7th and early 8th century writing works and responding to Muslim claims. St. Anselm of Canterbury, Can Canterbury, he discussed the relationship of faith and reason in his monologian, which is Latin for monologue. In his proslogian, he introduced what is famously called the ontological argument for God's existence. And of course, apologetics reaches its height in St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th, 13th century in his two greatest works, the Summa Theologiae, uh, which is Latin for Summary of Theology, and his Summa Contra Gentiles, which is Latin for his Summary Against the Gentiles. And he's offering a variety of different reasons for Catholic beliefs, dealing with a variety of different beliefs and engaging in apologetics. And then you have apologetics after the Reformation. So you have the challenge of Protestantism, 
dealing with Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Papacy, Prayer to the Saints, Purgatory. And then you have the challenge of secularism arising after the Protestant Reformation. And so we're having to deal with skepticism, deism, atheism, agnosticism. And then finally, in modern apologetics, we're dealing with issues concerning our Protestant brothers and sisters. So the challenge of Protestantism, the challenge of secularism and its offspring, throw in their relativism, and the challenge of the, claim, uh, the, cha the changing climate with ethical issues, so abortion, sexuality, transgenderism, etc., and so those, that's just a brief survey of the six different periods of apologetics. And my friends, unfortunately, our time is up. Please be sure to tune in next week on Thursday at 4 p.m. with The Catholic Reason. We're going to talk about objections that are often posed to apologetics. And so keep St. Michael Catholic Radio in your prayers. Keep The Catholic Reason in your prayers. And until next week, my friends, God bless you. And I'll talk to you then. Take care.